Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, March 14th, we're studying Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 18. Jesus tells a parable to his disciples about a manager and his master in order to give some instructions concerning the proper use of wealth. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jason Casper. Pastor Casper serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. He is also helping to plant a mission congregation, Epiphany Lutheran Church in Bastrop, Texas. Pastor Casper, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me, Pastor Apple. You should also mention when you do that that you are one of the pastors also involved in planting a mission church called Epiphany in Bastrop, Texas. Yes, sir. Bastrop is getting a new Lutheran congregation, Epiphany Lutheran Church. You, myself, Pastors Beck and Hill, who are also regular guests here on Sharp Iron, are all involved. Indeed. Unfortunately, we were the only ones they could find. (laughs) God be praised for his mercy and grace in working through servants such as us. Indeed. So, Pastor Casper, we get the privilege of studying the first part of Luke 16 this morning. Give us some context in the first 15 chapters in the immediate preceding context. What should we know as we prepare to look at this text today? Well, this is right in the meat of several parable, several parable lessons we get from Jesus. This is this is properly. I forget where that division goes. Generally speaking, we, we would say about this. This begins in uh, chapter fourteen, verse twenty-five. The discourses of the of the various parables that come through, and we're on our way between Epiphany and Jerusalem. We're we're getting ready to head to head towards Jerusalem. We're not not exactly a hundred percent on that road yet, but we're coming that way soon. Rich Man and Lazarus is going to come after this. Very well known parables, a lot of them. And along the way, there's going to be an increasing, um, an increasing intensity with which Jesus engages with the Pharisees in particular. And he's going to engage the Pharisees a little bit here in this parable. Um, among all the stuff we get to do, this one's fun because it's one of the most challenging passages probably in the entire Bible. This is a really complicated parable for us to understand. And looking back through the hundreds of years, the thousands of years of Christian history, the the general scope of everybody who approaches it is the same thing. I, um, I'm not real sure what's going on here, but I think it's <laughs> <That's right. laughs> blank. And that's great. It's 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 nice and it's encouraging to be in the company of such great, great minds before us who also struggle with this parable and how exactly to handle it and what it is that Jesus is trying to teach us. Some of the things are relatively clear, but there are aspects of this that are just way out there in terms of the teaching. That is, is most certainly true. I, I will I will say that this section of Luke, Luke 16, particularly verses one to eight, and then even how the next four or five verses relate to that are are among the most challenging sections of the scripture. And in my time as a pastor, which hasn't been terribly long, I think this this text and the three-year lectionaries come up three or four times now, and I think I've only attempted it once because it is it is a very challenging text. I, I think our, our listeners will agree as we read it that there's some parts that just say, wait, what what is Jesus' point? He's he's going to use a character in this parable that doesn't seem like he should be the good guy, but he's going to be commended. And that's maybe just one of the the struggles, the challenges that's here. One one thing I want to I do think that it's important for us to notice, and this has been a feature 
going back several chapters, as you, you pointed us, is that the audience that Jesus is speaking to does change here. He's gone back and forth since chapter 14, even into 13, speaking at various times to the Pharisees, to the crowds as a whole, to his disciples. Here he's going to narrow his focus at the beginning of our text to his disciples before the Pharisees come back into view. And I, I do think that's significant. I think we need to, to pay attention when the gospel writers you know, give us the audience. Not that it's not applicable to other groups, but that probably has something to say to us in the way that we read it and the way that we understand what Jesus is getting at based on the audience that's there. Well, and he speaks differently. When he speaks to the disciples, he speaks both in more complicated and more plain ways. Mm-hmm. And when he speaks to the Pharisees, he speaks in very pointed ways. And so there's, there is a, a a definite shift in the way that Jesus talks to the various crowds and the various ones that are gathered there. So the way that he's speaking to the apostles here, this one's going to be, again, I, I would I would love to have been a fly on the wall to, to witness the actual delivery of this parable, to just see the gobsmacked expression on the disciples' faces when they heard this parable and said, um, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> so with let's before we jump into this parable and and read the text one one thing that does stand out to me and you and I were talking about this before we started recording is that of, of all the texts that could be used year after year after year after year in the one year historic lectionary this is one of them yeah. and so our fathers in the faith obviously saw something important in this as challenging as it may be is there anything in the liturgical setting, some of the other propers that show up, the prayers and such things that maybe help us get a handle on on some of the themes that we're going to encounter in this challenging parable? Yeah. So, well, let's begin with the collect of the day. So of the for the ninth Sunday after Trinity, the collect of the day, uh, let, let your merciful let your merciful ears, O Lord, be open to the prayers of your humble servants that they may obtain their petitions. They may ask them such things as shall please you. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That that notion that our prayer falling upon the ears of the Lord is based strictly on his mercy. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a theme, I think, that's useful for us to pull out of this parable. That that the mercy of the Lord is on display here in a, in a, in a noticeable way. That's and I think that's useful to keep that in mind, and so that comes up then also when we when we talk about the the uh, the verse of the day and also the gradual. That same thing is going to play in there with the mercy of the Lord, particularly in the verse of the day from Psalm one twelve. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. That this perseverance and following after the things of the Lord. When the when the Psalms especially talk about the, the ones who delight in the commandments of God, that is not just the commandments, but the entirety of the Word of God, the, the Pentateuch in particular, which contains the law and the gospel, the full teaching of the faith. This delighting in the teaching of the faith, which, again, the Psalms do this constantly, relying on the mercy of the Lord, throwing our, ourselves at the feet of the Lord, that his mercy would overflow for us, and acknowledging that we're not deserving of that mercy. That stuff is 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 all really important to keep in mind, I think, particularly here with this parable where it's challenging what exactly is going on, Mercy is going to be a major feature of this. Okay, so I'm, I'm glad you're, you're bringing this out. And the, the theme of the Lord's mercy, I do think, is important when you look at the propers attached to this gospel reading in the lectionary. And also, in, in the question that I, I like to ask when it comes to parables, oftentimes we identify parables by a title, and the ESV gives us a title for this one. It calls it the parable of the dishonest manager. Now, 
I do think it's helpful to have a title so that we can have some shorthand of referring to a parable at the same time, as I've said many times, that can often color our look at the parable before we read it and sometimes place an emphasis on a particular aspect of the parable that maybe isn't what Jesus wants us to notice first and foremost. So you've been emphasizing the Lord's mercy. What do you think of the title, The Parable of the Dishonest Manager, and, and maybe what might be an alternate one? Well, I think that that emphasis on, on the particular syllable as you've done it there may not be the best choice of, of the way to call it. Um, I've also heard it called the, the Parable of the Unjust Steward. Mm-hmm. Um, we usually don't get into the weeds of the Greek very often here, but this one, adikaios, unjust, the opposite of, of justice and righteousness, that is kind of useful, the way this man is described. He's described as unjust. We translate it differently various places in the scriptures, and, and calling him, calling him as, as they do here the dishonest manager isn't a wrong way to talk about it, but I think that the unjust steward, the unjust manager, might be a better way to describe it because he's, he is a personal representative of the opposite of justice, of the opposite of, of what we would expect to see meted out in reality in the world. So that, that I think identifies his character a little better. Um, now, getting further on, I think that sort of gives away the punchline if we call it uh, the parable of the, of the unknowingly merciful master <laughs> or something to that effect. Well, and I, that's, that's kind of the part of the, the reason I asked this question is because there are often multiple, not always, but there are often multiple characters within a parable. And it, it generally speaking, the, the master, the owner, the king, the lord is usually someone who is there to teach us about God and how he acts in his kingdom. And so here, you know, again, the title places before us the other character, the, the manager, the steward, who is dishonest, unjust, I do think is a, is a helpful word. So maybe, I mean, again, just to, if, to recolor our focus, the parable of the merciful master, the merciful Lord. And I think, you know, again, with the the emphasis there in the propers and some of the things we've been saying, again, that that might help us to approach this parable and make it a little less scary. Because I, I will be honest, this is one of the texts in the Gospel of Luke. Like, oh boy, gotta gotta handle that one now. Let's let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, the parable of the of the the disgruntled thieving middle management guy, right? We're, we don't want to call it that because right. that's clearly not what's happening here. There's something else that we're not quite getting our minds around. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's go ahead and read then. Let let's take a look at this text and and try to get a handle on a challenging text, but one that I think will provide us great benefit. This is from Luke 16, beginning, beginning at verse one. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, and sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. 
And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. That's our text for today. That's Luke 16, verses 1 to 18. I read all of it because I think there are connections that we can make. I, again, it's those first eight verses particularly that seem the most challenging. That's the parable that we've been talking about. So, Pastor Casper, just help us get a handle on on what happens. Any backstory or background information that we need to know, just help us to get a, a handle on this story that Jesus tells. Yeah, so the, the sharecropping, the land ownership thing is, is probably an important part of this issue. Uh, the ancient Near Eastern culture, the way this works in the first century, we're going to have a, a master who owns a large chunk of property, and he's going to let that property out to tenants who are farmers and, and vintners and various things. And those tenants will pay rent when the crops come in at the end of the year. And so that's, that, that is a sequence of the way this thing is handled. Um, Timing-wise, I've heard it a couple of different ways. This could be something that's told in the midst of the year before harvest time, as if as if rent's coming due soon for some reason. Mm. So this could fit into that whole uh, uh, "be wary because I come like a thief in the night" kind of kind of motif. But that's not necessarily clear or upfront in this particular par- parable. Um, what is happening here is that there's a there's a clear transactional interaction that, that that's known in terms of its context, and that's that's what makes parables so useful as as teaching tools because they provide us with a worldly understanding that is very very clear that we do know well, and then infuses it with with some teaching that is far outside of our understanding. So with the uh, with the parable of the sower and the seed, that's one of those that that has a very well understood practice, and all the all the mechanics of it are strange. So this interaction here, the way that the, the tenants are interacting, that's that's an important thing. And the steward is going to be the guy under the master's house who's involved with managing these assets and making sure that the that the that the ones who are renting are are doing their job and providing for the master of the house, and that appropriate tenants are in the various places. And then also managing the master's house at home. He's he's the one that, that really runs the entire business. He's kind of like the the CEO of the of the master's company to speak of. So this this manager or this steward, as as we've said, he's kind of middleman's not the right word, but CEO of the company. He's the guy in charge of the day to day operations, making sure that the master gets his share of whatever the the share sharecroppers or whoever they were. Right, if they owe him, as it says, you know, so much oil, 
this manager, the steward, is in charge of making sure that it all finds its way into the master's hands. Is that yeah. right? And we, and here we're we're seeing the appropriate use of the dishonest manager right at the front. Yeah. He's being dishonest and wasteful with the, with the master's stuff, with his possessions, in some way or another. It's un, it doesn't tell us how, but he's being dishonest some way. This is where an observation of the outside world comes into play. If you've worked in a large corporation, which many of many folks listening may have, you kind of get a sense for this in the, in actual life. When someone is dishonest within a management structure and they steal from their boss, that's also the same kind of person that's going to steal a sandwich out of your lunch pail. It doesn't just go one direction. That that dishonesty functions up and down the chain. And so we can we can probably safely assume, and this is what we were talking about before we even got on the air. This is one of the areas where we have to sort of engage with this par- with this parable. And there are lots of options in terms of ways that we speak about it and interpret it. And, and none of them are necessarily wrong, provided everything is in keeping with, with our understanding of Scripture as a whole. Here, I think we're, we're, we're within ourselves to make the leap of assumption that this dishonest manager who is, who is stealing his master's stuff is probably also stealing from other people, too, in other ways. And I think that's going to kind of play into the interaction a little later on. So that structural thing is establishing who, what his position is in the world, what his job is. He really is, yeah, he's the top of the food chain in the master's house. So he's definitely not a middle management guy. He's right up near the top of the chain. But he has no qualms about stealing his master's stealing his master's, his, his master's uh, wealth and, and income off of the master's plate. And, and it isn't until someone else, who, who is the master who doesn't notice this? He doesn't even realize it until someone tells him, hey, by the way, your, your steward's stealing from you, man. Well, so and this is this is where maybe we do start to see the master come into a bit of a clearer focus already at the beginning. On the one hand, his action there at the beginning to call the steward to him and say, "Hey, what what am I hearing? It's time for you to turn in the books. You're you're done." But at the same time, he doesn't. There's not a, a very great urgency or immediate immediacy to this firing you know he's like yeah. you're out you're out of here it's get not, out yeah it's not clear out your desk and get out of here right yeah. and so i think i mean even in just the the actions of the manager or not the manager the master from the get-go you start to see a little bit hey this this guy is to use the word we've been using he's merciful he doesn't just kick him out right away he's already you know there, there's mercy involved in the in his actions toward the steward from the beginning yeah and he, he's, he's treating him far better than he deserves to be treated already yeah, he should, he should be he should be in shackles and sent to and sent to the gulag right away. But instead, the the, the master of the house says, "Bring in the books. We're going to make an accounting and determine what you've done, and then you're you're done. You're going to be you're going to be fired." Right, and he is not you know he doesn't like send his bodyguard with the the steward or something to make sure he doesn't doctor the, the books, books right, right? <laughs> or something like that. He he trusts this man, or, or at least he he doesn't. He shows mercy. I think that's the best way to keep it. He shows mercy to this man such that there's this initial interaction. Hey, your time's up. We need to make the account of the books. Bring them to me. And now the manager has some time to deliberate, some things to think about. His livelihood is about to be taken away. That's a, a bit of a crisis. So he, he starts to deliberate with himself. Uh, take us into to how the steward then begins to act. Yeah, he has, he has a moment to panic internally. And, and try to figure out where he's going to go and what he's going to do. Because clearly, he's living in the master's house. He's, he's, he's not just losing his job. He's losing his income. He's losing his home. He's, he's out and going to be out in the street. And he's aware of this. And so what am I going to do? I'll, I'm, too, I'm too weak to dig and I'm too proud to beg. 
<laughs> he also has a certain self-awareness that he he knows what he can and can't do. Um, it's interesting that, he, that that the begging comes in because there's quite a bit in the in the Gospels about beggars and how how they're treated and how they're rewarded in the Lord's kingdom. And and this man doesn't want to be one of those. He he specifically is too proud to beg, and he doesn't he la- lacks the physical capacity, or perhaps as has been expressed by some of these some of these ancient preachers we talked about, they they suggest that maybe he's he's lazy or slothful, and that's what makes him unable to earn a living in a different way. But he knows that about himself, so he's identifying his own his own foibles and his own weaknesses. I I can't do this. I can't generate for myself an income and be able to survive. So I have to figure out something else. And okay. so he's going to pivot. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. So he, he pivots. He knows he, what he can't do. So he can't dig. He can't beg or he won't. He's, he's too ashamed to do it. And so he makes a decision. And I think there's probably something to this, the way that he phrases this, so that when he's removed from this position of being steward, people will receive them him into their houses. He He's looking to make use of his talents or his shrewdness. That's the the word that we've been talking about. Right. Such that other people, even when the master is going to eventually relieve him of his position, other people are still going to be willing to, to receive him. Yeah. And so he's going to, he's going to do something to engender generosity and kindness from the other people in his life. And so what does he do? He starts calling in the master's debtors and he calls them in and starts this is this is fascinating stuff. He calls them in and he starts forgiving things and we have to we have to read this part carefully. I think. And and again this is this is an interpretive thing. I think we can't rightly hear this and say this man is stealing from his master when he forgives debt. Hmm. And that's where I think this dishonesty comes into play in that he is he's the kind of guy who's stealing from his master and is probably stealing from these people too. He's probably been overcharging them, and that's how I think there's room for him to give a certain thing to each individual without stealing from his master, hmm. because he's already been stealing on both ends. So he's not giving his master's wealth; he's giving of his own of his own ill-gotten gains, hmm. potentially. That's this is that's kind of a leap of interpretation. That's that's just a a way of looking at this, I think. So just uh, because again, I know because I've got, I've got some other things I want to throw out and I think you're, you're holding the book there in front of you that I I've looked at as well. But with, with what you're suggesting is that perhaps what he's doing in lowering the debt is it's so I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. It's like he's repaying things that he's already stolen. Is that what you're saying? Or is it something different? Well, or yeah, repaying things he's already stolen or, or giving, giving a break off of, off of uh, overcharging that's coming down the pipe, something to the effect of this, this debt. I think we might be safe in assuming that this debt was never actually owed to the master mm-hmm. in the first place. Okay. So the, so for example, in the, the first one, verse six, mm-hmm. the hundred measures of oil, you're suggesting that that was already too high and the lowering of the 50 is what it really should have been. That's kind of the way you're filling in some of the gaps. Yeah. And maybe, maybe that doesn't even account for, for all the, all the graft, but that's, I think that that fits into the, the narrative, how, how this man can be commended for doing something that is, that, that can't be against the seventh commandment. Cause that wouldn't work either. That. I don't think that Jesus would teach that way. Well, and, and see, this is, of course, the this is where the struggle of interpretation comes in, because what he does in this action is commended yeah. by the master. And so, right, is that's I think that's why it makes for such a challenging parable, because it, it seems like that the master is commending 
well, as it's translated, dishonesty or, or stealing. And we, we know we have the seventh commandment and Jesus is going to say just a few verses later that the law is not going to become void. Right. So, I mean, it can't, can't contradict so, that. So, yeah, and, he, and that I didn't even think of that as the connection point too. But yeah, that he, Jesus is literally telling us this couldn't have been a seventh commandment problem because the law cannot be void. So, so here, so there's got to be another another way that works, right? And so this is this is the the interpretation that I've I've heard several times, and and that's the one that I I latch onto the most because I, I think it makes sense. Although again, it does require some some backstory, but it 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 banks on that idea of the mercy of the master again. Mm-hmm. And again, this is coming from from Doctor Just's commentary, who I believe uh, credits Doctor Ken Bailey with with putting it out first. That the reason that this back and forth works between the steward and then the sharecroppers is because the sharecroppers know the master as a merciful man. So this is, this is how it works. When, when the manager, the steward calls in the first guy and says, Hey, how much do you owe a hundred, write it down and make it 50. That sharecropper doesn't think that the manager is being dishonest because he knows that this is the type of the thing that the man, the master would do. The master's, he's been merciful like this in the past. And then when, and the same, same thing happens again, a hundred measures of wheat, take it right down 80, right? This makes, this makes sense because the master has shown himself to be merciful. What happens then when the master commends this steward and he, he put yourself in the master's shoes for a second. You're looking at the record books and it's got a hundred written originally. It's been crossed off and says 80, and that's been agreed to by all the parties, mm-hmm. what's well, he going to do? Well, and, he, and he's bound by what the steward does because the steward is empowered to, to run the master's house. So he's he's bound. This this actually sort of ties into a, an absolution thing. Whatever you bind in earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loose in heaven. Those sins that are forgiven are forgiven because the Lord has promised to forgive sin as he has empowered us to do it. Mm. And well, so... And- and so here's this is the this is the thing with this dis or this the steward then and and the master if he looks at that and he says no 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 you really owe me a hundred dollars or hundred hundred measures yeah then all of a sudden he ruins his reputation as being merciful he shows himself not to be the merciful master that the sharecropper thought he was and so, such that and this is the way the interpretation works then the reason that the manager the steward gets commended is because his shrewdness was to bank on the mercy of the master. He, he knew the, the master was merciful in the first place by not just kicking him out on the street from the get-go. He knows his master's been merciful to his debtors in the past, and so he, he uses that now to his own advantage to gain friends and then ending up with a commendation from the, from the master himself. It's, it's challenging. Even as I, I say it, I mean, I, I like it, but on the other hand, I'm like, Man, there's there's a lot of backstory that I'm I'm not sure about, but I think that one at least fits with the rest of the biblical narrative. Yeah, and and it does too. And that, I mean that's that that's actually the cool part about this parable. There isn't a fixed interpretation that must be the one. There there are good interpretations of it, and and a lot of them are good. <laughs> and that's that's where I kind of I land on this one where I think the man is dishonest on both ends because, and I think that this is still fits in that same idea, the merciful master is going after this servant and and probably knew that there was theft going on. Someone brings it to his attention and now he has the opportunity to to act. Mm-hmm. Okay, you've been dishonest. I'm going to pressure you because I'm pretty certain that you are going to give back some of that that you've already stolen. 
and in so doing, you're going to make me look more merciful, which I am. Mm -hmm. I'm being merciful to you. You're going to be merciful to them, and everyone is going to understand me in a merciful way. And I'm even being doubly merciful to you, the steward, because I'm giving you the opportunity to present yourself with a soft landing pad. Mm. In the shrewdness of your dealing, you have the opportunity to not dig your heels in and be an obstinate sinner, but rather to turn from your sin and say, I, I think I'm going to handle this differently and, and mm. pray upon, enjoy the mercy of my master and praise the wrong word <laughs> and, and, and hope and expect for the mercy of, of those who are the sharecroppers under the master's care. Right, right. So either way, it's still, we're coming back to that mercy of the master. And that's what we're going to keep talking about on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Luke 16 with Pastor Jason Casper. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, March 14th. We're studying Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 18 with Pastor Jason Casper. He serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, prior to the break, we were working through this challenging parable, the dishonest or unjust steward, his merciful master. We were talking about the mercy of the master on the other side. Tell us a little bit about you know this these debts that are there. A hundred measures of wheat goes down to eighty. A hundred measures of oil goes down to fifty. What what kind of amounts are we talking about? So we I've heard this done a couple of different ways, and I think that it's it's safe to assume that it has a constant value, and the and the value seems to be something in the order of of five hundred talents. Mm. And so we're talking something like a year and a half, year and three quarters worth of of wages for the average person. So that's that's kind of. This isn't quite as astronomical as that that wage that's forgiven of the man who goes and chokes his neighbor to get to get a, a smaller amount of money later on in a different parable or elsewhere in a different parable rather. But here, this is a significant amount of of of, of wealth of value. Um, so him forgiving this huge amount of debt to the masters, the the, the sharecroppers underneath the master's care, that is kind of bolstering this idea that he's he's going to be. He's going to be expecting a, a, a more generous treatment from them because of that. Um, this this generosity of the master idea, again, bolstering the idea that the master is merciful. He's kind of pushing the hand of the of the unjust steward. And this is where the, the unjustness of his stewardship comes in. Justice would say, this is what the master is due. I've been stealing from master. You need to pay up because we got to balance the books today or come as close to balanced as we can get them. And instead, and again, I think this plays into that, that, that thieving from both ends sort of idea. He is giving generously from his own wealth in order to, in order to establish a good relationship with these folks downhill from him because he's going to need their help. He's soon going to be on the street looking for their, for their assistance and be in a, in a social position beneath theirs, and he's going to need them to be kind and generous and merciful to him as well. 
So I think that kind of plays in. So the, the significance of the amount of debt that's forgiven really does actually play in in terms of how much is there and the righteousness and the unrighteousness, the justice, the un- injustice, the unjustice. So take us then into the way that Jesus starts to wrap this parable up in verse 8, and then as he starts to apply it to his disciples in verses 9 and following, the, the thing that is, as the ESV translates it, is that the master commends this dishonest manager, or again, the unjust steward, for his, his shrewdness. So what what does that mean that he's being commended for his shrewdness? Yeah, I'm not sure, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not afraid. All right, to, good. Well, no, I mean that's it, it, how else how else do you handle that? It, it, we're not. I'm not quite sure, and I'm quite confident because I'm sitting here with this this heavy book of of a couple thousand years of church fathers' preachings, and they're not sure either. There are various directions we go on this, and it it the shrewdness seems to be in 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 using money in a way that is something other than unrighteously gathering. So where, wherever this ju- unjust steward was before, he was doing unrighteous things with his money before. Now he's doing something different with his money. He's he's making friendships, he's building relationships with people by way of this unrighteously gained wealth in hoping that he will he will receive kindness and generosity from them in the future. And that that's the shrewdness as I'm understanding it right now, in the way that he deals with the sons of this world, because the shrewdness is is going to pay off immediately in this world. He's going to starve in this world unless he comes up with a way to prevent himself from starving. See, I, I like, how did you say it, that the his shrewdness is using the unrighteous wealth in something other than storing it up for himself. Yeah. I, I think that's really helpful, and I, I because I think it fits with what Jesus is going to keep talking about wealth here. And things that he's talked about wealth elsewhere. And, and one of the, the places that I, I go back to is Luke chapter 12, where Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool. Mm-hmm. And and particularly there, because in the parable of the rich fool, you've got that guy talking to himself. That's one of the features of that. Here you've got another person talking to himself. This one gets commended. That one ends up dead and, and lost. And I think, so I, I like the way you said that, that the shrewdness is... He uses the unrighteous wealth in something other than storing it up for himself. And I really think that that fits with what with what Jesus is going to go on to say and everything else he teaches about wealth in the scriptures, particularly here, you know, as he starts to apply it then, I think, to his disciples in verse 9. I, I think, I'm, I'm not, there's probably a difference in opinion sometimes on this too, but I think by verse the end of verse eight, the parable is over. In verse nine, it seems he's talking more to his disciples and now applying this parable. When he talks about making friends for yourselves by means of this unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. I mean, that to me, that sounds an awful lot like what Jesus says about giving that wealth away to yeah. those, to the people who need it. Yeah, absolutely. And this, and the, it, it's, it seems pretty clear that the one thing that's unrighteous in its use of wealth is is keeping it, storing it up for myself, and building bigger and bigger barns. And this this is a this is a gross misunderstanding we have about wealthy people in general. Um, we, we have this this uh, mythology in our minds that everyone is Scrooge McDuck, McDuck swing, swimming in his money bin full of gold, and that's not really how money works. And and folks that are wealthy and and continue to grow more wealthy do so by investing, by 
really by letting money out, by giving giving money to folks who, who may or may not be able to repay in the hopes that they will return greater investments on the other side. And that is the way that, that wealth is built and, and, and established and grown. It, if, you, if you just hoard it up to yourself, it never actually does anything and it never actually matures or improves. It just sort of sits there stagnantly. And then... And and when when Jesus talks about moth and rust destroying the things of this world, that's kind of what happens. If it, right now in this very moment in time, with our with our the value of our dollar, if you were to set a, a stack of dollar bills on your desk and come back tomorrow, they're worth less than they were today, and that's going to continue for a while. And mm-hmm. so, money actually has to move back and forth in order for it to be engaging. Now, combine that with Christian charity. Now you have. Another feature of, of how the involvement of, of unrighteous wealth in 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 less less uh, uh, covetous probably be a good mm-hmm. word for it less covetous ways where we're not we're not gathering it and retaining it only for ourselves to to just hoard over but but growing and maturing our money so that there is money available to us so that we can have folks that are that are the the ones who, who donate to the the building of the new church in Epiphany in a few years who are able to to provide for soup shelters and all those other various things that require money in order to operate and it requires generosity which requires Christians of generous spirit and means to provide for all of that work to, mm. to take place. Yeah, I mean, again, I think as we're, as we're talking through this, this is helpful, and it, it really does it really does tie together a lot of the things that Jesus has said about wealth already. Again, to go back to chapter twelve, you you brought out, you know, the treasure here is stolen by thieves, destroyed by moths. So what does Jesus say? Well, sell the possessions, give to the needy. Back in chapter chapter fourteen, when he was talking about sometimes called the cost of discipleship, you know renounce what you have well why because it's going to be gone one day anyway here what do you do with that you you give it you give it away again you use that so that even though you may starve now you may be poor now as jesus says in his beatitudes you have the kingdom of heaven you will be filled you will rejoice right all these all these gifts that will come in eternity what do we do with our unrighteous wealth right now we we don't store it we give it trusting in God. And I think, I mean, it's really starting to tie some of these things together as Jesus gets to maybe a little more familiar language to us in verses 10 and 10 through 13. Well, before you jump there, sure, the, go ahead. the Christian actually has, a, has a, a unique view on this because as the world sees wealth and sees possessions and as life and vigor start to slip out of the fingers of the one who has possessions, the, the natural reaction of the sinful flesh is to grab tighter to hold on to what you have and to try to possess it more. And the Christian doesn't have to do that because the Christian has a reward that is far beyond that that isn't contained in this world or in its wealth. And it, it's okay to let it go. It's yeah. okay to, to give some some all, a portion, whatever whatever your heart compels you to do. It's okay to be generous with what you have because there is more waiting for you on the end. And those same folks are the ones that we see who attend to the Lord's house more faithfully because at the end of their life, they realize that this really is a very important thing and the other stuff doesn't matter as much. They start to be much more concerned about their children and their children's children and what they do and whether they, whether or not they come hear the word of God. Not so much whether they're successful or they're making money. They're, they're more concerned about, where are my grandkids? I need to see them in mm-hmm. church. 
Well, and I think, I mean, so I think that ties into what Jesus says about being faithful in little things. So like unrighteous wealth, be faithful in that. And then being faithful in the big things, the the treasure of God's word. I mean, if you're not going to be, well, how does he say in verse 11, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? That, that sounds like there's some some relation there. Yeah, absolutely. And that 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 pairs in mind that this this gift, this great gift that the Lord is giving us, and, and it's not to say that that's contingent upon it. Your, your faithfulness in this is going to earn you salvation. Right. No, salvation is salvation is a far greater gift. And th- this is one of those places where we can take Jesus' words and kind of reverse them interchangeably with themselves. If you're not faithful in much, who's going to trust you with, or if you're not trust, faithful in little, who's going to trust you with much? I am trusting you with much. I am giving you much. Be faithful with the little bit, please. Yeah. Can you, can you do that for me? Right, right. And then, I mean, verse 13, I think that's pretty familiar to us, and but very worth repeating. You can't serve two masters. It's it's one God in your heart. There's not room for two. And, and here Jesus singles out God or money, one or the other. It can't be both. So are you implying that the first commandment actually applies to me? Yes, <laughs> and me too. That's and the, the, well, but our catechumens struggle with this because it's it's God and money, and you can replace money with almost anything else. It's God and something, and it doesn't work that way. It's only God, and to to Him alone will shall you serve, and you will only be faithful to the Lord God and nothing else. If it's money that's your problem, don't be don't be going that direction. Let the, let the Lord be the master of your of your life. If it is entertainment that drives you, don't let that be your be your master. If it is some other some other particular vice or sin that drives you in life, don't let that be your master. And Lent, what a great time for us to be talking about this, That's because right. Lent is the time when we talk about ourselves as Christians, and some Christians engage in putting off those those vices during the time of Lent, the things that distract us from attending to the Lord's house and attending to the Lord's word and hearing and receiving. Let's not have two masters. Let's have one master, at least, you know, maybe for 40 days or more. Hopefully those those practices for 40 days take root in our lives so that we do engage in the, I mean, you know, getting rid of those idols. And, and the Lord, he does that for us, sometimes in more painful ways than others, but he's he's willing to, to knock those idols away as needed. Yeah, those lessons are, are not always easy to learn. That's very, very true. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The, the, the quadragesima, as we would call that in the historic lectionary crowd, we have the, the quinquagesima, the, the, the various jesima Sundays leading up to the 70, 60, and 50 days before Lent, and then oh, the quadragesima, the 40 days of Lent, which all, it's kind of funny, we're not talking about I think this. you're making up words right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny, because all of those are not precise. They're all, it's about 70 days, about 50, about 60. Uh, and quadragesima is also not 40 days, it's about 40 days. It's actually 46 days. And the Sundays are not calculated within that. So all those are sort of these estimations of time. So you cannot serve God in money. It fits for however many days of your life. Yeah, this yep. is okay. Good, good, good. So Nice recovery. Good job. All right. All right. So Jesus has been talking to his disciples and apparently the Pharisees have been eavesdropping, it seems. Or, they, or they've just suddenly appeared on the scene. Something yeah. to that effect. So... And I think this is this is worth worth noting that the last time we met the Pharisees in the beginning of chapter 15, they were grumbling at Jesus. Here they hear what Jesus has to say, and they're ridiculing Jesus, as it's translated in the ESV, which seems a bit stronger. And I think that, you know, that kind of fits as Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. Opposition is growing. He's been trying to get at the Pharisees, but they just aren't listening. And right now they're just ridiculing him. Yep. 
and and op- this is this is different than grumble. This is open mocking. It's becoming more intense as we head to Jerusalem. There is going to be a ratcheting up of all the things that are happening around Jesus as we get closer and closer to the cross. Much more intensity and much more severity. And he's going to become more pe- more pointed in the way that he preaches. And he's he's talking to the the Pharisees this way too, as they're ramping up and becoming worse. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Hmm. That's that's brutal vipers talk right there. That's good stuff. Well, so <laughs> how does I mean how does that connect to their love of money and some of the things that Jesus has been saying? What's what's going on that they're they're justifying themselves before men, but God knows what's going on in their hearts. How does that connect? So their their love of money seems to be actually what Jesus is teaching against in this parable before the way that we interact with money, the way that we interact with each other, and the Pharisees and their and their love of possessions and retaining wealth is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is teaching. And it demonstrates this is one of those was one of those bits where we sort of interpret from action and from from behavior. When this stuff is present in the Pharisees, Jesus is telling us their hearts are not turned to God. Their hearts are turned away from God, which is an abomination from God because two masters if God is not the master of your life, who is? You're serving the one that's an abomination to God. You're serving that other master. And and that, that sort of, that exposes the work of the devil in the world. The devil doesn't have to come and say, here, I'm the devil, worship me. Mm-hmm. He only has to present something that is different than Jesus. Here's a thing that is appealing in a different way. Here is, here, uh, I think, oh, in fact, I'm certain I, I got it from uh, Pastor Wolfmuller, the, the notion that God, the devil will grant you anything you want if you'll just turn away from Jesus. He'll even grant you happiness and love and wealth if that's what it takes for you to turn away from Jesus because that is the master of your life. He doesn't have to he doesn't have to make himself the master. He just has to give you a different master to become your master in its place. So that's that's what's happening for the Pharisees and it sounds like that's what's happening because they've rejected the word of God, the word of God that they had in the law and the prophets, the word of God that John preached and the word that Jesus is now preaching. That, that seems, at least that's the, how I'm tying these verses together. That's foolishness. Jesus they have the law of God, just a, a better version of the law of God, which is, you know, more intense and, and has higher strictures upon it. So clearly that's, this is better than the law of God. We, we Our righteousness is, is higher than the righteousness of the, of the, of the lesser people around us. So they would say. Yeah. <laughs> And so that they they don't think of themselves that way, and that's why Jesus is telling them this. This this is, I mean, really, this this is almost akin. I was teaching the kids last night about excommunication. This is this is akin to that. He's not. I, I don't think he's teaching this to condemn them. He's teaching this to turn them from their wickedness. Why are you Why are you searching after that thing that's an abomination to God? You know who the Lord is. This is an abomination to him. Turn away from that. Don't do that. Go a different way, and that's that's the way the church treats excommunication. It it's not to cut people off from the church; it's rather to hope that perhaps this severe thing will be enough to 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 cause a sinner to change heart and, and turn away and go a different direction and return to the house of the Lord. Mm. I think that's that's also the right way we should hear Jesus' words. He's becoming more intense in his condemnation of the Pharisees, not to send them to hell. He's becoming more intense to keep them out of hell. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. And when, again, when you think about the last time Jesus interacted with the Pharisees in chapter 15, where they are just grumbling, Jesus tells those three parables, one after another, about lost sheep and coins and finally sons. You guys. And that's who he's talking to is the Pharisees there, especially with that older son. And it's a call for them to 
come to the feast to to come and believe in Jesus. And as their as their opposition to Jesus grows, so Jesus does become more pointed. But again, always with that same goal of calling these these people to repentance, to come back to Himself, to to forsake these ways that that can't do anything that won't end up with eternal dwellings. That's what he's always doing. And I I think it's such a necessary thing for us is every time we read Jesus speaking harshly against the Pharisees, we always need to to keep that end in mind. Well, and never forget that we are the ones he's talking to. That's right. (laughs) That too. That's it. That's it's always easy to, to turn, to turn a dark eye to the Pharisees and say, Oh, those, those wicked Pharisees. Yeah, that's actually me. I, I'm that guy, and I'm that word is for me to hear also. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. So the law and the prophets have been preaching. The Pharisees have been misusing these things, trying to force their way into the kingdom, but not any part of the law is going to become void. And then in verse 18, there's a text that I think is, is relatively familiar to us, particularly from Matthew and Mark, where Jesus expands upon this more. Here it almost seems out of place. Dr. Just's suggestion, I think this is helpful, is that Verse 18 about divorce and remarriage and adultery is an example of the law not becoming void. This is something that still stands. So we've got a few minutes here to talk about this last verse. What what does Jesus have to say about, as the ESV says, divorce and remarriage? Well, this is a this is a passage. Interestingly, these verses 18, 16 through eighteen don't appear in the in the one year lectionary or the three year lectionary, which includes that that little bit about the Pharisees that's excluded from the the one year lectionary. We don't actually hear these three verses on Sunday morning in any of our lectionary systems. We, we do hear at least one of the parallels from Matthew and Mark in Matthew Good. 19 or Mark chapter 10. I know those, para, those parallels show up where Jesus expands upon this with a question from the Pharisees. Good, good. Well, thank you for exposing my sin and failing to prepare adequately for this this session. I just know because I've preached on it before. It's not a very comfortable text to read or preach on, is it? No, and it's well, but it's good and it's useful. Man, is it ever good stuff for us to hear? And this is... This is the problem of our age. We're struggling in a in a world that doesn't understand what marriage is and is is reinterpreting and redefining gender and marriage and all aspects of society to conform to some ridiculous thing that's in our mind. And what 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 is actually happening is is something that might have been staved off or prevented if we if we as a church had stood firm on something a little bit more central. The notion that marriage is an actual important part of the Christian life and that divorce is wrong. The notion that marriage can just be dissolved and, and in our in our world, we you and I've grown up in this era, you're a little closer to my age than some of those other fellows we keep company with. Um, you, you, we're we're old enough to remember growing up when when this this no fault divorce world was still kind of a new thing. And so growing up, there were various aspects of, of families I was engaged with as a young man where you would have a family that was that was newly divorced and it was early on it was it was sort of a pariah issue and later on it was a little bit more accepted and then it became a little bit more common. And then it became almost a, a badge of courage to be a single parent. And all of these things sort of miss the they don't sort of, they absolutely miss the key point that it is it is useful, important, and godly for Christians to be married and stay married. And the notion our society has built that marriage should always be happy and wonderful and fulfilling in, in emotional and psychological ways isn't really what Christians should expect from marriage. And the idea that we can have a no-fault divorce thing that exists in our world, again, goes directly contrary to the scriptures. The only reason that, that a couple should ever be divorced is if there's something that actually is 
also contrary to God's word in place here that's driving that's driving this couple apart and separating them from God together so that hopefully one can stay in the house of the Lord. Outside of that, we're not really happy anymore. Pfft, tough. Be unhappy, but be faithful to God's word. Well, I'm just not really feeling fulfilled. Again, your fulfillment is in God. It's not in the things of this world. It's not in the things that moth and rust destroy. It's not in, in emotional happiness and cheerfulness. It is it is in the things the Lord gives you. And one of the things the Lord has given you is a spouse and children. And the, the responsibility of caring for these children and the necessity of maintaining a relationship with that spouse, even when it's difficult, um, I, I can't cite my source here at all, and I'm sad. I'm sad to say that, but the the definition of marriage, according to a a, a, a Christian who speaks in counseling ways about it, is is the, the the concept of lying in bed next to a person whom you desperately love and desperately want to kill in their sleep. <laughs> Pastor Casper, this is a. I mean, it, it's a tough word, and and the reason it's you know what actually it's it's not a hard word. It's a very simple word. It, but it, that makes it hard. That makes it hard. Because and it's simply, the answer to your question is no. Yeah. It's, and it's, Can I? No. Right. But I really want to know. The answer is no. You can't do that. Yeah. You shouldn't yeah. do that. Please don't do that. And again, this is the harshness of, of the way Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. So too the harshness here. It's hoping that you will just turn from this idea and, and find another solution to your problem instead of that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, anytime we talk about this, the, the hurt that has happened because of divorce in our society is huge. And I, I think that's, at least I know as a pastor and as, as a, a Christian friend, you see people suffering because of this. And, and that's why words like this from Jesus, while they are hard for us to hear, we need to hear them to call us back to the goodness, to his gift. And I, that's, I mean, that's where I always want to try to keep people's focus is on what's the good thing that he gave marriage. And that's so good that we can hold on to it even through times of cross and trial, because we know we've got that good thing from Jesus. And so yeah, God, God grant us the courage as Christians to hold on to this, to, to give this word to the world so that we might hold on to the, the good thing that God would have us. Pastor Cass, we got about a minute left. Help well, us to wrap this text up today, and, and commend it to your children, because that's that really is that that's the crux of this whole of the parable itself, the, the the condemnation of the Pharisees and the discussion of marriage. It's all the same stuff. These are errors of the Christian life and errors of life in in this broken world of sin. And as parents and as and as teachers of the young, what do we want to accomplish? We want to prevent them from seeing those pitfalls in their lives. Don't do this dishonest thing when you're when you're in in the working world because it's going to come back on you. When you are gathering up wealth, don't hang on to that wealth instead of the word of God. It's going to it's going to separate you from God. When you are married, get married, stay married, remain so. It's better for you to do that and choose wisely when you're selecting a spouse because if, if we all understand that this is going to stick for the rest of your life, then let's make it a good choice that's actually going to last that long. All those sorts of things play into it, and all of it is there because as parents love their children and as, as church members love the young people coming up in the faith, we, we want everyone to have less trouble than we do. And our Lord, our Lord gives us that, that love for, the, for the, the neighbors around us, and he also wants us to be comfortable and live content lives and be happy with the gifts he's given us and be, more importantly, receive him in faith and die 
a faithful life at death at the end and also be gathered to him at the end, the last day. What more could you possibly want mm-hmm. than that of the Christian faith? Yeah, and, and always, always in all of that, returning to the mercy of the master, because the one who gives this word is merciful. He knows our sin and weakness. He gave his son to die for that sin in his mercy, that we might receive him in faith and receive forgiveness. Pastor Jason Casper is pastor at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas, also helping to plant a church in Bastrop, Epiphany Lutheran Church in Bastrop, Texas, helping us today with Luke 16, verses 1 to 18. Pastor Casper, thanks for being our guest today. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me again. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. you have any questions about Luke chapter 16 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.